Matthew 18. I I mentioned to a few of y'all, I got home and I sat in my chair and I closed my eyes and I thought, oh, I told them I had two passages to talk about from Jesus, but I only talked about one. And so I just wanted to look at Matthew 18 that I was supposed to talk about this morning. Just real quick, when we're thinking about forgiveness, debt's being paid, right? Because uh, when, when, when we think about forgiveness, that's what we need to that comes to our mind. That something is owed, and then therefore it needs to be paid. Um, you know in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When you sin against someone, you have indebted yourself to that person, right? And they're, they're, forgiveness is a transaction. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that I have wronged you, and I I need your I need your forgiveness. So I want to challenge y'all in life at home. This is very difficult. I promise you. I want to challenge you at home. If you say something that wasn't the best way to talk to your spouse or your kids or your neighbor or whatever the case may be, huh? And so I would say, instead of just saying I'm sorry, ask them, will you forgive me? And the first time you do it, if, if that's not something you do, you're like, it's difficult. It's not, it's not easy. But that's actual repentance and forgiveness. Is I'm sorry has just kind of been this thing like, you almost says like, well, I'm sorry you got upset, you know. Uh, but forgive me it says I am indebted to you because I sinned against you and I need you to forgive me of my debt right I need this transaction to take place so I want to challenge y'all to do that uh, it is not easy because it does bring humility and that is something your flesh does not want to acknowledge so forgiveness we looked at uh the parable of the two who owed debts, one larger than the other, and then the one who had the larger debt loved more. And basically, Jesus was saying, if you don't think you, if you, if you, if you don't owe anything or little, he used a little, then you're not going to love. But when you realize you owe a lot, when you owe God a lot, and He's forgiven a lot, oh, then the love you love much. And the reality that Jesus wanted to say is, this is everyone. Everyone owes much. But the people who don't acknowledge it are the ones, are the other side of the coin that he says. Or he, he, he also says in another spot, um, and I wanted to reference this, but I didn't, and I'll just read it so I don't misquote it, because I tend to get it backwards. Um, no, I can't find it. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinner, right? That the righteous doesn't know anybody anything. They're like, I'm okay. I'm. I don't. I don't need forgiveness. Jesus can't help that person. 
He comes for the sinner. And that's why he that's why he sits with tax collectors. That's why he eats with prostitutes. That's why he 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 was given grief by these righteous people um, for mingling amongst the sinners. So that was when you are forgiven, you love the one you forget who's forgiven you. But Matthew 18 says, when you're forgiven, you also forgive others. You imitate who you imitate the one that's forgiven you. And I'll we know the parable well, but let's just read it quickly so we can see it. Starting in 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, and he goes into a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle an account with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. So my note here says a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. You heard that correctly. 20 years wages. And he owes 10,000 talents. We say this guy has a big problem. What's So can if you owe, let's just say you make a modest, I'm going to round off, 50,000 a year. right? That's a wage for a year now. And you times that by 20, we're talking, uh, is that a million? We're at a million. That's a 20 years of wages is a million times 10,000. Can you pay that off? You can't pay that off. So the point of that amount is it's unpayable. Do we understand? It's unpayable. Verse 25, and since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Okay, now, I didn't plan on mentioning this. He's now going into debtor's slavery, okay? This is a real thing back then. If you owe people money, they put you in debtor's prison or into slavery as their servant. I should have said debtor's prison. Now, the the, the theme of redemption in the scripture comes in the New Testament, comes from this. So this guy's in prison. Now this isn't the way the parable goes, but let's say someone comes along and pays his debt. They have redeemed him. That's redemption. The debt was paid so that he could be freed. Do you understand? Now there's also ways of redemption in the Old Testament that we won't get into. Um, but... A debt is owed, a debt is paid, they have been redeemed. But that's not the way this one goes. The king actually redeems the servant. So the servant, verse 26, fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. Okay? So did he? Did his buddy owe him less? Right? He didn't owe him quite as much as he owed the king. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Sounds familiar. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you... And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father, parables over, Jesus speaking again to the crowd directly. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here's what I want you to understand. To be truly forgiven by God through the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just – it is a transaction. okay? It is a transaction, and your debt is forgiven. But that transaction also comes with a heart of mercy, a heart of forgiveness. right? We're born again. We're not just – our debts aren't just forgiven. We're not just forgiven of our sins, but we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And that being born again, being made, uh, being indwelt with the Spirit is going to give us a heart of forgiveness and of mercy. And so, forgiven much, you're going to be you're going to be willing to also forgive much. And um, that that was the the other one that I wanted to look at this morning. Just thinking about debt and forgiveness and what we owe. Alright, so now let's go to Hebrews 9. And we're gonna take we're gonna take a stroll through this. And I kind of want to just gonna give you a heads up, kind of the outline for this section, for this chapter. The first Oh, ten verses is dealing with the old covenant, the old regulations for sacrifice, the old uh, the old rules for uh, when a high priest is going to go into the most holy place and offer the blood of uh, bulls and goats. So I'm, we're going to quickly run through that, and then I was trying to avoid it, but there's really no way. We're going to go back to Leviticus 16 and read. Don't make that face. We're going to go back to Leviticus 16 and read God's desire or now God's uh, design or plan for the Day of Atonement. And if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it here in a little bit. And then after seeing how the high priest go, uh, does all the things that he does on that one day, we're going to come back in the last, the rest of Hebrew, Hebrews 9 and see. What it looks like for Jesus. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 1, he starts. Now even the first covenant, which is the old, right? We're, 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 the old is vanishing, it's growing away, as it says at the end of chapter 8. Um, and the new is here. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And when he says regulations for worship, he means 
for the priests who are serving in the tent or the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, That's what he's talking about. But they did it in an earthly place of holiness. So your translation might say a worldly sanctuary or an earthly sanctuary. Sanctuary means a, basically is a place of holiness. That's why in, in, in Christian tradition we call you know this area the sanctuary because we're, we're assuming that this is where we, we dwell in the presence of God together. All right. Now, we could go, well, I won't go there. So, but basically he's saying where the high priest went in the old covenant, they went into a worldly or earthly place of holiness or sanctuary. And inside that sanctuary are two sections. And I'm kind of paraphrasing as I go through here. Uh, inside the tent, and he uses tent on purpose because it literally was a tent in the beginning. But I also think he's using it to kind of make it sound not so awesome compared to the heavenly tent, right? The heavenly place. But it literally was a tent when it first started. For a tent was prepared and it had the first section and the first section uh, was called the holy place. The holy place. And in it there were there were instruments of worship. We've got a lampstand, a table, a bread of the presence, and we could get into a lot of that, but it's, it's not helpful for us today. But then there's a curtain beyond that first room, that first section, which leads into another section in verse 3 called the most holy place or the holiest place or the holy of holies. You've probably heard it said all three ways. Having the golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. So the Ark of the Covenant sat in that inner room, that inner place, the Holy of Holies. Do you all know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Huh? They were, they were tablets. Yep, tablets. Um... I think it might even say that here in a minute. Having the golden ar altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. That's another story you got to go back and read in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament. And the tablets of the covenant. There it is. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things... We cannot now speak in detail. I'm glad he said that because that just makes me feel easier. That I don't have to go into detail about all these things, because um, he's wanting to make a point, right? So here, but here's what I want you to say, and we'll see it in a minute. Here's what I want you to see: back in five, in the most holy place, is the mercy seat. Now I got to explain the mercy seat to you. The mercy seat is the cover. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's what separates Israel from inside of the Ark of the Covenant. It, the mercy seat literally in Hebrew is the covering. Alright? And at the mercy seat, God told Moses that that's where I'm going to dwell. 
above the mercy seat. He says this. He says, tell Aaron, he's talking to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come in at any time into what he's referring to as the holy place, which is actually the, the most holy place, inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. Because if he does, he'll die. If he just wanders in, because that's what Aaron's job. He's been made the high priest, and he's the one that's supposed to come in. But he cannot come in at any time or any way he wants. And he ends that statement with, For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Alright, so now, verse 6. Then we get into the actual duties and and the rituals of the priest and the high priest. These preparations, thus having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, not the, not the most holy place, but the holy place, goes into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest. So, so we have a high priest, and then we have multiple just priests under the high priest. The priest can go in the first section to do their regular priestly duties, but only the high priest can go into the most holy place and he can only go once a year. And look what he says. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, that one day a year has a name. And in Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur. In English, it's the Day of Atonement. This is one day a year, every year. The high priest would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to offer the blood for the sake of himself and for the nation of Israel. So this is where I want us to turn to Leviticus 16. And I have explained as much as I need to on that. So we're just going to read it. Leviticus 16. And more than likely, when you get there, your heading's going to say Day of Atonement. And now, this first two verses is what I've already read, but we'll read through it again. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Do you know what they did? They didn't obey God and how they ought to do worship. And he killed them. Um, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, which is actually the holy, the most holy place, inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on, look what he's got to do. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. I mean, that their only job was for this day. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So he's got to take a bath. He's got to cleanse himself before he goes into the presence of God. He's got to put on these clean linens. 
And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his own or for his house. So atonement, I guess I need to explain that, make sure I understand, is to cover. That's what the the mercy seat does, right? It's a covering. Well, what he's doing that day is he's going in to put blood on the, the mercy seat to cover, to atone for the guilt of himself and his people, Israel. Once a year, he had to do this every year. So he had to go in, make atonement for himself. You got to hang on to that, and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and another lot for Azazel. And you're gonna, you're thinking, what's Azazel? You'll we'll get there. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. For who? For himself. He shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Get the point? And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. So he's going into uh, the most holy place. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. You do not do this this way, Aaron, and you will die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. Not the west side, Aaron. On the east side. If you do it on the west side, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Not six. Not eight. Seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood. Okay, so back inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions. All their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Okay, so even the tent, Aaron had to make a sacrifice, an offering, because the tent was unclean, just simply because it dwelt in the midst of Israel. Right? You seeing that? Verse 17. No one may be no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. It shall take some of the blood 
he, uh, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. So you might be saying, okay, why so many important details? Why not six times? Why not eight times? Why the east side, not the west side? And it's because of who God is. Because God is perfect. God is holy. And there's none like Him. And to worship Him, as we've talked about in Sunday school, it must be in His way. Not our way. In exactly His way. And there might be sometimes you go, but God, it's just eight times. Well, His ways are greater than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. Who counseled Him? Not us. Right? And this... This detail of having to hold to this detail shows that you don't mess with the holiness and perfection of God. You are strictly obedient to it. And that should be a theme of our gathering and our get-together and our singing and our praying and our, our preaching and our fellowship. That we don't just decide, oh, we're going to act like a church this way. We're going to worship this way. The Bible it's pretty clear on how we ought to worship when we come together. So this is showing us the holiness of God. But it's also showing us the sinfulness of, of, of man. Okay, verse 20. And when he had made an, an end of atoning, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So we still got one goat alive. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and it shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. What are they doing? What is that? What is that saying? Our sins are gone. They're 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 gone. They have been put on this goat, and they have been sent away from us. Right? Um, I I don't know where I heard this. It's more of kind of a joke. But they used the, the tradition says is that they would send someone out into the wilderness to wait for the goat. And when the goat got there, they'd kill it to make sure it didn't come back into the camp and bring the sins back into the camp. But, you know, that's just... I, yeah, scapegoat. That's where we get the term scapegoat, right? Uh, verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meetings and shall take off the linen garments... That he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in the water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash their clothes and bathe his body in water 
and afterwards he may come into the camp. So, that's the Day of Atonement. That's basically what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he's talking about the high priest offering sacrifices, taking blood to the altar, going into the tent. That's what he is talking about. Um, So, let's just fast forward back in Hebrews 9. And let's uh, let's go to 11, where we have our transition. He transitions to the new. But when Christ appeared as a great high priest of the good things that have come. So, he's about to do something. He's about to give distinction between the old Day of Atonement... And the true day of atonement in Jesus. He's going to give what I can see is four major distinctions. And number one, it starts with Christ. But when Christ appears as a high priest of the good things that have come. So number one, the first distinction is the perfection of the high priest. And you might be thinking, well, where did I get that? Look back at verse 9. Which is symbolic for the present age. Here it goes. According to this arrangement, how the priest ought to do it, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, that it might say of him who, what, uh, him who serves in the tent or something of that nature in your translation. The high priest, he's doing all of this and he's still a sinful man. He's still imperfect. Now, here's what I here's the cool thing. Um, look at chapter seven, verse twenty-eight. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Keep going. Five, chapter five, verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. One more time. Chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Right? So what's the big distinction? The first big distinction is that the high priest that's offering this work is perfect. He's perfect. Better than all the others. So the second distinction we see... uh, Christ appears as the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. And mine has parentheses, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. 
If you look down at verse 24, we get a little bit more specificity. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. That's the true tent. That's the true dwelling place of God. Not a tent made by hands, but heaven itself. The high priest took the blood into a tent made by man, an earthly sanctuary. Jesus, the Christ, takes the blood to the sanctuary, the holy place, the presence of God, where He dwells. Alright, the third distinction, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. He entered once for all. Some of your translations might just say he entered one or one time. And what is that in comparison to? Every year. Every year the high priest had to perform all of that stuff. One time Jesus did it. And that was it. Once he entered once for all time into the holy places. And here's the last distinction. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. What's the big deal about his own blood? Yeah. But but what about but why can his blood now go to chapter one? Go to chapter one. Verse one. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why is his blood better? It's God. It's God. It's God in the flesh. You read the rest of chapter 1. And it just amplifies that. He is God in the flesh. And as Mike said, that turns into that that turns out perfection. That turns out what would what we would say is a lamb without blemish. Right? A spotless lamb. Um, yeah, and we can we can see all that. So let's um let me see what I want to do here. Verse 14. Verse 14. A little bit more about his blood. How much more, how much more, as opposed to the blood of bulls and goats, how much more will the blood of Christ, the Son of God, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here's what I want us to see. There are, um, I don't like the word benefits, but that's the word that keeps coming to mind. I wrote the power and effectiveness of the blood of Christ. And I've got one, two, three, 
four of them, and we've got two of them in these next few, in, in, one ver, in verse 12 and verse 14. The first one in verse 12 is payment. The power and effectiveness of the blood of, the blood of Christ offers the payment. Look what he says at the end of 12. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Now remember what I said to redeem someone is you make a payment, right? Well, you know, in the sense of if you pay off someone's debt, you've paid it in full and you're done. Well, if you owe debt because you sin, when was the last time you stopped sinning? It hadn't. But the blood of Christ is able, not just is able, did secure, obtain your eternal redemption. Meaning, it's paid for all sin. And it's secured that. It's not whether or not, it's not, this is what makes the new covenant better. You don't have to keep coming back, keep doing this over and over again, keep being, we're going to see in chapter 10, we're going to, these, these yearly things remind us of our sin, which isn't helpful. But the blood of Christ, the blood of the Son of God, the per- perfect blood of the uh, spotless Lamb secured a payment that was eternal. Right? That, that will take you to eternity. That is the power of the blood of Christ. And the second one... So that's the payment. The second one is the purging or the purification of the blood of Christ. Verse 14. How, again, I read it. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purify our conscience or purge us from dead works to serve the living God. This is what I was trying to explain this morning, that the pervasiveness and the pervasiveness of sin and making its way through your entire being, your mind, your will, your heart, your affections, sin has tainted it all. And that's we what we did we read Ephesians two this morning? Dead in our sins and trespasses, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. But Paul gives us a better sense in Romans three when he says, None is righteous, no not one, their mouths are open graves, there there there's venom under their tongues like uh, snakes, ass. They they seek out blood, and who's he talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about sinners. That's the depth of what sin does. And you might, you know, you might say, "Well, I'm not that bad." Well, praise God. <laughs> there, it, apart from God's mercy, we should have more Hitlers. Do you understand what I'm saying? Apart from God constraining evil, we all have the ability to be as evil as Hitler. And, and that's that's the depth of the sin nature. But the, the power and effectiveness of the blood of Christ, it gets in every nook and cranny and it purges and purifies. 
That and and see, and that that doesn't make sense though. If you're a if you're a one-time I got saved Christian and I never go back to church or read my Bible again, that really doesn't make sense then. If the blood of Christ is purifying you and purging you, because then that that just seems weird because you're just living your life like everyone else. You don't care about sin. But that's not what God that's not what God's intention is is for when he comes to you and saves you and purifies you. He's calling you to I'm getting ahead of myself to pursue purification. Uh, okay, John, First John, not John, the gospel, but First John. I know we've read this a hundred times. Just a little bit to the right, guys. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. First John, chapter three, yeah, three. Yep. And we're just going to read verse three, just for the saving of time. First John chapter three verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. See, that's God's desire and, and goal and giving you his spirit is to purify you, is to cleanse you. Look back at verse chapter one of first John. Verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to purge the sin and wickedness out of us. Right? And do you, and do you know what that is called? Christ-likeness. Being like Jesus. Being made like him in a pursuit of holiness. And that examine ourselves and always, as 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 I said a few weeks ago with that quote from Robert Murray McShane, every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Every time you think about yourself, take ten more thoughts about Christ because he is altogether together lovely. And that is what our pursuit is, is Christ likeness. And the, the motivation to become like Christ is when we dwell and know him more, right? All right, so payment, the power and effectiveness of the blood of Christ is his payment, his eternal redemption, and his purging and purifying us. Man, I wanted to go through Romans 3, but we won't. Um, okay, back to Hebrews 9. I'm going to summarize verses 14 through 22. And you can go back and read them. This is one that's always kind of given given me fits as I've studied it because of the word will that's in there. And you could really just substitute, which is helpful for me now, substitute the word covenant. But basically, he wants the the preacher of Hebrews wants you to understand that the old and the new, any covenant that God makes with people. Blood is necessary. This is really weird if you just don't think about it scripturally. But if you just told someone, an unbeliever, that God, if God wants a relationship with a human being, there has to be blood involved. And that, as I said, that's what covenants from God are, is his, his wanting to be in a relationship with a particular people. With Israel, if you read this section, verses 4 through 22, after he made the old covenant, do you know what Moses did? 
he he got blood and he mixed it with some stuff and he just threw it on the people. But it was necessary. He was inaugurating that covenant God was making. And what was it? It was signifying, I cannot be in relationship with sinful people apart from the shedding of blood. Because if it's not if it's not someone else's blood and you try to partake in a relationship with me, it's going to be your blood. You're not going to be able to come into my presence to have a relationship with me and live. So this covenant, the old and the new, he basically says has to be inaugurated, has to be uh, made by blood. And that's why we get the most one of the most famous verses in the in Hebrews in chapter or verse 22 without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins but i found out as i was studying this that that's really that forgiveness of sins is not a great translation but it's without the shedding of blood there is no purging you cannot be cleansed without it um okay which gets us to 23, 24, and these are the next two, and all of my all of my things about the, the power and effectiveness of Christ happen to be P words, payment, purging, and the next two are presence and being put away. So look at verse 24. Verse 24, the effectiveness of blood's Christ brings us into the presence of God. For Christ has entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. He took his blood, went into the heaven, went into heaven, into the presence of God on our behalf, so that we could have relationship with the triune God. Okay? That is the presence of and then the last one is uh, putting away sin. Verse 20, start at 26. And when, and then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Here's where it starts. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself by his shedding of his blood he has put away sin now i've restrained myself from writing down a hundred verses to talk about the putting away of sin and i know that we have discussed it much tonight if not many times before right god doesn't When people, when you hear people say, God wants a relationship with you, that's true, but it's not really what he's after. When he, when people say, God has a great plan for your life, you know, trust him, that's true, but that's not what he's after, right? He's after a people to be in his presence forever to glorify him and the only way that happens is if he puts away sin that's the only way 
And it just so happens that that's a good thing for you too. It's a win-win. Um, so our response, and I already touched on it, our response to the payment for sin, the purging of sin, the being brought into the presence of God and the putting away of sin, our response, and you guessed it, it starts with a P, is to pursue. Is to pursue. Look at verse 28. And I, you know, I'm... It doesn't say pursue, but I think we could all agree that after I explain it, that that's, I could, that's, it'll work. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he bore them, he carried them. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Why? Because we already said in 26 that he did what? He put it away. It's dealt with. Uh, which will be another theme as we get through in chapter 10. Um, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So one statement on the concept of save those. Um, you might think, well, I got saved when I was 12 or 46 or whatever. But the truth in salvation is a process. It's a three-step process. The first step is what we've been talking about tonight and this morning is being made right in the sight of God. And we call it justification. You've been justified. You were guilty, but now you're justified. You're declared innocent. That's the first step in the process. The second step is lifelong. It's called sanctification. It's, it's that sanctification is being made holy. It's a process. It's a lifetime. But the third step is what he's talking about here. The final step of salvation is when Christ comes and all. And there's no pursuit of holiness. There's no pursuit of putting your own sin away. He comes and it's gone. It's gone. That's the final step in being saved. Right, and that's that's why we should never have an attitude that says, "Oh, I've been saved, so I'm just waiting." No, we are being saved, and that's what he, that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. For those who are being saved, the power or the word of the cross is power to you. But that that was just there. But what I want you to see is, who's he going to save? Is he going to save all of those? Who got baptized? No. Is he going to save all of those who prayed a prayer? No. Is he going to save all those who went to church? No. He's going to come for those who are eagerly eagerly waiting for him. I want you to chew on that this week. If he's coming back and you're not excited, if you're not hoping, if you're not like, hey, I'm ready for... If you're not ready for the presence of Christ... If it isn't what makes you tick, you might be in trouble. So, who, what is it? This is why I'm getting to the pursuit aspect. Is that it doesn't mean I got saved. Now I'm sitting on my couch. I'm like, okay, here he comes. He's coming. Is he coming? Is he coming today? Is he coming today? No, he's coming. No, we're pursuing him. 
Because we want Him so bad. We don't want to wait till He comes. We want Him now. Right? We, uh, we pursue Christ. We pursue Christ-likeness, which means we pursue holiness. We pursue, we pursue His glory. We pursue His Lordship. We pursue Him through prayer. We pursue Him through reading His Scripture. We, th- we pursue Him through growing together in the body of Christ. We pursue obedience. We pursue worship. And that is showing our eagerness for His return. Not sitting around and be like, come on, come on, come on. But it's, like I said, it's us wanting to come to Him while we're waiting for Him to come to us. Does that make sense? So, let's pursue Him individually and also collectively together. Um, Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your infinite wisdom. We are so gracious. We're so thankful for your graciousness to unfold the truths of your purpose and plan to us in your word. God, we exalt you for that, that, that power and effectiveness in, in the blood of your Son. God, may we not forget how much it cost. May we not forget your, your will and desire to purify and purge all those whom you have paid for their debt. God, and help us to, to earnestly seek your presence and to fight to put away sin, to put to death the deeds of the body, and to pursue Christ for the sake of him. God, we need your help. We need your we need your compassion. We need your steadfast love, your long suffering. We are a needy people. We need you every hour. Help us, Lord Jesus. For your sake we pray. Amen. If you got, yeah, all done. If y'all got a bulletin this morning and it actually was the same on the front and the back, there's a few more that are back there that actually had the back on it. It was one of those mornings. No, we did. There were like six of them that had the front on the front and the back. But hey, you should see how good they're cut. How good the kids cut them this week. That's what we have. Yeah. Yeah, we were doing the whole scissor thing for a while, and well, it's just like it got bit by a shark or something.